Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. We speak today to Peter Grosskopf, the CEO of Sprott Inc. We talked to him about market conditions today, what he thinks is coming down the line, and how we retail and family offices can protect ourselves against that. He also talks about some of the products that they have created, and in, about gold in particular. He's also got a fancy for digitalization of gold, so we try and understand what that means and how we can get access to it. Plus, he gives us his price predictions for gold by the end of this year. And we get into how he's managed to structure the business so as to safeguard it against future problems. Enjoy the podcast. Hey, Peter, how are you doing, sir? I'm well, how are you? Yeah, not bad, not bad. You're back in the office, I can tell. So things are relaxing a little bit over there, are they? They are. We've been an essential business, so we've been fortunate, and we also can operate virtually. So for our staff, it's a bit of a choice that they have. Um, but the office is a safe place right now. There's not many people in it, and it's it's kind of fun to be back. And uh, you know, there's a few more tools here, so I feel I feel you can be pretty active in the office right now. Oh, fantastic, fantastic. So, like, I'm, first of all, thanks so much for coming on the show. We had we had Rick on a few weeks ago, and he was fantastic. He's really interesting um, chat through his you know, life and times, as it were. Um, I kind of want to do the same well, thing. Thanks as for you. having me. That's a hard. Those are hard <laughs> shoes to fill. I know, right? <laughs> but we'll try. I think we can do it. I think we can do it. So, what I want to talk about is a little bit about you, if I, if I may. So, you've you've come from a banking background into investment. Can you kind of just again for people let's say. I suspect a slightly newer audience, new audience for you um, with, with the kind of European slant here, because I think Sprott is very well known in North America, a very big player, kind of globally natural resources. But um, can you talk to us about where you were, what you did, and why you moved? Well, I'm happy to share my story. I, I started as a commodities uh, futures and options trader in 1987, and I trained with a couple of the large Canadian banks. And I was always covering the uh, global gold and metals and mining sector from a position of being a banker and um, being a service provider, if, if you can think of it that way. So I grew up in the business knowing the CEOs and helping them either raise money or uh, complete transactions. And as part of that, I met Eric Sprott back in 1992 when he was one of the preeminent growth investors in the sector. And I came in and worked with him and uh, helped him open a Vancouver office. I, I was in Vancouver covering the mining sector at the time. So from that background of being, um, and then increasingly I, I became senior in the investment business. I founded my own dealer. The dealer sold to TD in 2000. I went back to run Sprott Securities, which became Cormark. And then Eric asked me to join him in 2010. So I, I, I walked across the street to, uh, quote unquote, learn the buy side and learn to become an investor and help Eric run his company. Now, who would have known? I top ticked the market. I had become um, a believer in gold as a hedge against the general financial system and, and, and also government actions um, protecting the financial system. So I, I believed in gold, but I came in at exactly the wrong time. And 
uh, it was a work in process. Um, Eric was a star manager. He had another star manager, John Embry, working with him, who came from RBC. And it was a star management culture in the metals and mining management sector in general. So for me, the first thing I had to do was try and systemize that um, to become uh, a, a, an investment pedigree that could be followed by younger managers and provide some succession. Um, and that took the best part of 10 years to do, really. It wasn't easy. And we had to hire lots of other experienced managers in the sector, including Rick Rule, and with his geologic um, uh, mindset and experience base. And we also in invented and and uh, rolled out new products, which became very important to us, like the bullion management products. So it took a long time to build a platform that was capable of attracting uh, funding um, and and making a bigger play in precious metals, like like we think is still the opportunity today. So tell, tell, I'm interested in that. I'm interested in the the. the bedrock, the foundation of what you were trying to build. So the, what, was the, what was the actual problem you were trying to fix? You talked about, you, you said, I had to f systemize it, right? Why did you have to systemize it? What was wrong with the star manager process that you, well, it wasn't a process, I guess, the, the, the environments in which they existed? No disrespect to Eric. Eric is probably the single most impressive investor in our sector altogether. But to try and follow him um, is impossible because it, it, it's the mind of a, a trading savant in the sector. And what we needed to take was the best parts of that process and put some risk management around it, put some institutional style asset management around it and, and still try and inherit its best parts. So that was what it was at the core. Um, also, his performance is volatile, more volatile than the average investor because he only focuses on the endpoint. And if it's your own money, you can do that. And if you have private clients, you can do that. But for institutions and retail clients, a different style is needed. So um, the, the, the volatility of investing in this sector, the timing challenges of investing in this sector, we needed some different products. So that's where the bullion product came in. That's where the lending product came in. Uh, products that, that investors could get some of the upside, but also protect their downside in the sector. So that's really interesting as well, because you're saying basically different people have different investment models, right? They have different strategies, different needs. Okay. So your in yeah. institutional guys need some degree of liquidity to this and a kind of constant growth i suppose these as you say big violent right. swings which exactly. is the mindset of uh, an entrepreneur you don't mind going through yes. some tough times right so mm -hmm. so how did you go about doing this so when you, you've gone to the market and said well we will make money by bring bringing in an investment and creating products for for those people so again talk me talk me through that because i think it's, it's fascinating how you build a company well, we, we had two great tools right from the start. And the first, well, for, for, I, the, the, the most important was the brand. And being number one in the sector had a lot of advantages in terms of attracting talent and, and people. Um, so that was always there. The second thing, and it was part of my coming to the firm, was that we had a lending business, a resource lending business. 
And that was a business that I knew could be grown to handle institutional and more conservative clients and, and used as an entree to the sector. And for, for my own capital, I know uh, the challenges of timing and the nice thing about with a lending business, you don't have to worry about timing. You can go in at any time and earn a, um, and, and the process was easy to identify. It was easy to sell, that it was value added. You know, investors could not do that for themselves. So that was one one core of the growth, and that that business is still growing today. And then there was this bullion management business that Eric and James Fox had seeded, and was um, a, a U.S. listed trust that held the bullion, and it had one huge advantage over the GLD, and that was that it was a physical trust that held one hundred percent underlying metal and also was taxable on a capital gains account in in most circumstances so we knew it had advantages we knew we could grow it and james and i in the early days we we, we did a lot of these um, offerings through morgan stanley and rbc but recently that business is is, is um, on fire i mean a lot of investors want bullion a lot of them recognize the benefits of our trusts uh, John Champaglia and the uh, other team that run that business have computers working for them now, and the computers create and redeem units when required. And that that has been an all-star this year when investors have gravitated towards bullion itself more than the miners. Okay. So what you're doing as an organization is what I think you'd probably recommend that retail or family offices do, which is kind of build a portfolio approach to their investing. That's effectively what you're, you're doing as a business. It is. We can, we can be anything from an advisor and consultant to people looking at the sector to handling a very specific product for a very specific need. So we cover the whole gamut. And um, we can advise investors on how to enter and what their expectations should be when they enter. And of course, the most difficult bet is public equities because they're so volatile. And you know, we have tools and teams and a process and a, and a deep way of looking for catalysts in that sector now um, that I think we can uh, comfort those who are investing that we've got uh, a plan and that the plan is to take advantage of the leverage inherent in the equities. And right now it probably looks like just about the best opportunity out there. And you as a business have also got different revenue streams to kind of see you through the tough times and the good. Like obviously well, at the moment it's, it feels like a, a case of last man standing because you it is right that's the other thing so we were investing in the business and and making acquisitions right at the bottom of the market a lot of others were leaving and and that was for two reasons first of all there was a bear market in precious metals and secondly asset management asset management had completely changed sector funds were um you, you know totally being shunned by investors and brokers uh, if you wanted a view on a sector, you simply bought an index. You bought an ETF. You didn't. You, you didn't come into a fund. So, a lot of the world's largest precious metal funds just shut down, and we were able to sweep in and, in some cases, pick up talent, or in other cases, buy a, an undervalued franchise. And 
there is a bit of a last man standing exercise to it in, in that we just stuck with it and and we knew that at some point there was the high degree of likelihood that uh, gold would shine when um, the credit bubble kind of started to burst, which is, is what's happened this year. It's a great thing about cycles. You'll, you'll always eventually be right, right? <laughs> well, you've got to make it through the bottom. You've got to have the money to invest at the bottom. Absolutely. But, that, but that's what I'm getting at with this. Why I wanted to understand how you've gone about building the business, because if you think about what you've done, you've protected yourself by finding different revenue streams that we're just going to see through the different cycles yeah. for different commodities, et cetera. And I think that's so lending. Yeah, lending in the bullion funds paid our dividend while we waited for the sector to reignite. Uh, it was as simple as that. And and those two businesses are, are stable. They powered our dividend. At one point, we were paying over a 5% dividend. So what we started to realize is that most of our shareholders were holding us as a precious metal proxy and almost as they would a royalty company as opposed to being royalties off ounces produced in the ground out of the ground we were royalties on ounces held in storage right and uh similar margin quite frankly and similar uh, small staff so levels of profitability were getting better even while the gold market was low okay which makes total sense to me that but it's been brought about by the way that you have re-engineered the business away from star manager status where you've taken the best bits i get it you kind of almost in, in a way ai'd the company by taking the best bits and removing what would you say you did remove did you remove the emotion from the decision making individual decision making processes that were based more on gut instinct and in the 1990s or 2000s when some of these managers were absolutely killing it um, returns were astronomical and astronomical compared to the benchmarks those systems were based on personal information that was gained not i'm not talking about insider information but personal relationships they gained from ceos and, and that's the way the business was transacted nowadays computers as we all know run much faster than humans the information once a drill hole is out is is known by everybody and everybody can model that information so we needed a system that could react to that as opposed to gut instinct and that's what it was but let me just run through a list of names in terms of the collaborative dna that we put together so there was eric there was John Embry, there was Charles Oliver, there was Paul Stevens, there's Whitney George, there's Rick Rule, there's Neil Adshed. I mean, the list of investors that we had to um, that we had to combine to get that that system, you know, as 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 good as we could was was a long one. It took a long time. Yeah, and I mean, it's, it's fascinating. That, that's a lot of a lot of knowledge, a lot of power in there. But you you've got to engage it. You've got to control it in a way, control the, the, the good bits. I mean, do you think there's a, there's a, with the advent of technology and the fact that this data comes out quicker and it's, it's more understood throughout the market quicker and disseminated through the market quicker, that it's kind of removed the um, playing to the crowd component of, of decision making, of investing you know, is the is the hype around individuals? Is that is that part of what you wanted to remove? 
Well, originally, yes, but of course, you need to know how the crowd's going to react as well. So it's not, not got out of it entirely. You still need, I think, human beings to analyze, okay, is that drill data going to disappoint? Is that production data going to disappoint? Or is this now on to another phase where it could get better? And um, I think it's a combination of the system, risk management, and individuals that add the necessary ingredients. But as the last man standing, don't you feel that you can move sentiment? I get the fundamentals need to be there, but sentiment needs to follow very swiftly behind. People need to get behind the sprot decision or the sprot investment. And you do place a lot of bets and people do use that as an investment strategy. We're incredibly incredibly active. We look at probably um, you know five different op- investment opportunities per day uh, that are new um, it's it's still um, for a smaller investment situation we might be able to move markets but certainly not for anything that's bigger cap um, we recently took over the Tocqueville uh, gold business in the US and John Hathaways now also one of the contributing uh, investors to that methodology and even with him and his large u.s gold fund we still uh focus on mid-cap companies and when we're holding a stake it might be five or ten percent it's not really enough on its own to move markets you know it's it's a good sign i guess of of uh, endorsement for the companies but um the, the market's pretty broad yeah, well, let me, t- let me talk to you about that, because I, I interview a lot of uh, companies and I, I've lost count of the amount of CEOs who tell me. And of course, Eric Sprott or Sprott Inc. are investors. Um, but you guys have big bets and then you have mm-hmm. not big bets, big investments, sorry, where you, you, you kind of doubling down and doubling down on, on, on an investment because you truly believe in it. And it, and it does, you know, the, the company needs that cash and it's able to do things without cash, which is great. But there are a lot of companies where you're placing a million, two million bucks, even five million bucks. It's in itself not enough to, you know, get the company to where it needs to be. But the fact that your name is there seems to resonate in the marketplace. And it's something that the CEOs latch on to. I mean, do you, do you, sorry, take this the right way. Do you, do you place casual bets? You think, well, it's mining. Sometimes you've got to get lucky. And sometimes it's based yeah. on pure pure data. So, are there bets that you make? Or sorry, are there investments that you make which you think, well, actually, not sure, but it's probably worth a couple of million bucks on this one. So it's a very good question, uh, but I can tell you, absolutely not is the answer. Um, we, as part of this um, system, and as part of attracting our own clients to whatever best suited their own risk objectives. We have earlier stage funds. Neil Adgehead runs an exploration partnership for us. Rick Rule's business is based on earlier stage companies. Um, th- that, that attracts a certain kind of investor. But to make those bets, due diligence is done. I mean, Neil's a PhD in the sector and um, would never make a, a casual bet, would always look at the drill data, would always think it's a world-class project potentially in order to accept the risk rewards. So for us, those small bets, when you see us making them, that's about seeding. That's about seeding investments for the future. 
and uh, talk about the Sprott system, it's something that we think is an essential service is to, to know what's going on from the earliest stages of the drill play right to as it goes into production. What we don't do, generally speaking, is focus on big caps. Our, we leave big caps to our indexes, and we do have indices that, 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 that hold big cap stocks. But once it's in big cap format, it's very hard to make a difference. And, you know, we'd have to have a very specific thesis to go overweight a, a big cap. Okay, so t- tell me a little bit about that ecos- the investment decision-making committee ecosystem that you have. Is it down to individuals yeah. or do you sit down on a Monday morning and go, guys, let's, let's talk about what's happening this week? Well, there's always an individual PM that has a fiduciary duty to, to make the tie-breaking decisions. Some funds run by way of investment committee where there's a vote, an official vote, and some funds are unofficial in that they have a, a group of PMs sitting around a table and having that Monday morning meeting. But in all cases, it's a, it's a teamwork-based approach. Okay. And I, I know you've got, I know a little bit focused on the capital market stuff, but that's kind of, I guess, where the magic happens, right? So, and you've got, you've got your ETFs and uh, you've got your, you've got your bullion and so forth. You've got lots of products out there, which retail investors, family offices can go and latch onto. But the, the bit which they, I guess, enjoy um, is going and making these bets themselves on, on certain companies. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to sort of, um, draw the parallels between decision-making that you go through. I, you're telling me heavily informed. You've done a lot of diligence, a lot of homework, and the way that retail go about it, which th- there's, there's a little bit more emotion to the decision-making mm-hmm. and a little less homework. I mean, what, do, do you think that retail investors are equipped to make decisions around capital markets? Not always. Um there are retail investors that are simply great traders. I know my um, uh, one of my my doctors at my lo- local medical uh, facility is an awesome trader of precious metal junior equities, but it's because he's a chartist and he's extremely good at at, at reading charts and and he does very well. So everybody's got their own skill set. I think throwing darts or in particular listening to uh, brokerage recommendations that are based on commission. You know, when a deal is coming and and you're being pitched to to buy a deal because there's a big commission, I think those are are dangerous events because you you shouldn't be throwing darts. You you should have some knowledge. You should be betting on either the charts or you should be betting on management or you should be knowledgeable enough um, as some investors are to, to read the drill results or the production results. Yeah, I, th- I think I think that's true. You, you've got to understand what your own strategy, right? We said at the beginning, everyone's got a different business. Yeah, you have model. to have a strategy. And, and stick to it and be able to make that call. Because um, yeah. I, you know, I think we, we get in discussions with uh, indiv- you know, individual retail investors and you know, I, I don't say anything, but you, you kind of walk away going, you're, you're not really here to make money, are you? You're here. Yeah. You're here to be right, which is not necessarily the same as making money. Um, yeah, so. it's, it's tough. I mean, it's it's not an easy sector. It's a it's a sector that's humbling, and and where even the best investors in this sector probably make more mistakes than they get things right. But they they know how to trade those that they get right in a way that that more than makes up for all the losses. So. The most experienced and successful investors in this sector, I say, do, do, do two things extremely well. Number one, 
when others are selling, they're buying. And when others are buying, they're selling. And number two, they know how to, 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 to keep their winners. And it's, it's usually, it's, it's the 80-20 rule. 20% of your investments will make 80% of your return and the rest will probably detract from that return. No, I think, I think that's right. It, it's, it's tough. It is tough. You're right. It's very tough. Um, you've got to make some calls on your investments. You know, need to know when to get out. And sometimes getting out at a loss is the best decision that you'll make mm-hmm. uh, on, on that particular investment. But like, um, we, we, we could talk on and on about retail investment strategy, but I want to talk about something which I think you're a little bit excited about, which is the digitization of gold. I, yes. Why don't you tell us about yeah. that? Because that, that feels like something new that people don't know too much about, but makes a lot of sense. So what's your take yeah. on it? Well, I'm an ardent believer that this is going to make a big difference to the sector. And, um, and, and it's been slow to take root. Um, but the technologies are there and they're available. And what we're talking about is the digitization of the gold ledger. Gold Ledger is a, a record of every bar that's in storage, and it forms the vast majority of the uh, net worth of the gold business. So if you think about the gold business, it's about $8 trillion. Uh, there's a certain percentage that's held by central banks. There's a certain percentage that's held in jewelry. And then there's a certain percentage that's available in above-ground bullion storage. And that number is in the trillions. So we're talking about a huge market. I mean, we talk about gold versus Bitcoin. Gold absolutely swamps Bitcoin. Bitcoin is like a flea on the back of an elephant compared to to gold. So the digitization of that um, gold that's above surface is absolutely required for gold to enter the modern age. And by modern age, what I mean is to lower the trading spreads, to allow gold to be moved in a reliable, quick, safe fashion between investment accounts for an individual, and to allow gold to be spent uh, in small increments as a payment system as well, which it's never been able to do before. So when you look at those goals, those are all entirely possible now with technologies that are already working and on the table. So why isn't it taken off like Bitcoin? Well, it's because there's existing players in gold that are making too much money keeping the system the way it is. And we're talking about the LBMA and its members. We're talking about the the, the big traders in gold. We're talking about even the World Gold Council and the GLD itself, which is a phenomenal money-making ETF. Um, and most of all, we're talking about the spreads in the business to the retail customer, which are extremely punitive, uh, whether it's coins or whether it's even buying small uh, bars on storage. Who would invest in a, an asset that's supposed to be liquid if you're being charged 5 or 7% to go in and out of it? I mean, it, it's never, it's never going to take hold. So what digital gold does is whether it's on the blockchain, which I think is by far the most exciting and secure way of, of, of building the, the gold, ledger or di- gold ledger digitally, 
or whether it's simply an electronic form. If you have a certificate of deposit that has now been verified and put into an, an electronic contract, those can both be sent in seconds. They can be traded in seconds. They can be traded in with very low margins. Theoretically, it's all based on um, the claim that you have to the physical gold. And it would not work in our view unless an individual having such an electronic certificate could go to the point of origin where it's being held and claim their gold physically. That has to be the case. So once again, it's Sprott standing up for what we believe in, which is you need physical gold ownership to properly store that value outside of the financial system. So that, I mean, okay, obviously you're talking about gold here, but blockchain in itself is, has had a difficult ride in thing other, anything other than security because people need to know how to harness it. Governments need to know how to control it. You know, banks need to know how to to, to you know, manage that process because it effectively it, it sends information in a way which is hard for people. It's encrypted, heavily encrypted. It's hard for people to break yeah. that down. So I think until you get the big the big players who you mentioned, how do they make their piece from this? How do people um, understand how they monetize it? It's going to be very difficult to get the kind of groundswell of support that it, it needs, isn't it? I mean, do, do, you, do you see this? It's been happening slowly, but it's been happening slowly in lots of sectors. So is this going to get over the line commercially? I think it is. I think it is going to get over the line because I think it's too compelling for, for instance, the LBMA not to digitize what they already describe as London good delivery gold. So it also ties in with ESG and proper provenance on the gold. Once the gold's produced, it should be able to be traced. And if it's properly produced and ethically produced, should be able to be traced onto a digital certificate. So the LBMA and its members have too much to gain by not endorsing this at some point. They just want to figure out how they're going to make the most money from it, frankly, which is in, within their rights. And, and, and so we do think it's going to happen. In terms of the regulation, which is what you were touching on there, it's pretty simple for gold. Gold needs to go onto the electronic rail and off of the electronic rail in a regulated fashion. It's light regulation, but it's, it's still, it's a know your client requirement primarily. So you're not gonna be able to create digital gold and send it around the internet to criminals and then have them take it out in some fashion, some country where it, it can't be noticed that it's being taken out. Perhaps in the interim, it can be sent through the, uh, you know, the hypermarkets, the, 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 um, the, the, the unregulated internet, but going in and coming out, it's regulated. So for gold, it's pretty simple. And um, the existing regulated entities that handle gold will be handling digital gold. There's not going to be, you know, black market dealers in digital gold. Okay. So that 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 I think is fairly straightforward, and it's already been established. It has. I, I guess what I'm trying to get to is, you know, how quickly does this get to a point where, you know, retail family offices, uh, you know, people outside of the institutional bubble um, can access a product like that, uh, well, understand it first of all, and then access a product like that. 
Yeah, so I think the, the, the information and the technology is there to be understood. It's working. So small commercial, we have a website that we JV'd with Atmex, which is the world's largest uh, gold coin uh, online dealer. And um, that website is called One Gold. And you can go on One Gold and you can buy physical digital gold within okay. one and a half seconds. Fantastic. Well, we'll, so we'll, uh, and, we'll put that and, 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 and a very acceptable spread, like an institutional-like spread. Okay. And it will be stored for you. Uh, so there's, there's certain websites that are up and running and that have the capability of handling it already. The question is, when does it get to be the volumes that, you know, the gold market is uh, known for? Gold market is an incredibly liquid market. 140 billion a day of, of trading, 90 billion a day, 70 billion to 90 billion a day of settlements. Um, you need some big organizations going digital in order for it to really take off. Okay, I, I guess one of those, uh, let's watch this space, see how that grows, see, see what the sentiment for, for that is. Um, just not staying on gold, because it's your, your thing, is I read something recently where you were talking about your view on the price of gold talked about 1800 bucks in March of 2021 as being realistic. I, I see a lot of ads and headlines, people saying $3,000 gold, $5,000 gold, $10,000 gold. These are sensationalists. And I think if you look back over time, they, they are no more than that. You know, for the last five years, people calling big numbers, but things don't happen. Why are you so pragmatic about where gold's going to go? Well, because it's a huge market and uh, it takes a lot of volume to move it. And it takes a lot of believers to move the price even $100. Um, there's people that, 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 of course, take profits on the way up and use it as a trading tool. And um, look, I'm a, a huge believer in gold. And if you take a look at the financial system and what's happening with the financial system now, you actually don't need to go too far. In fact, you need to be willfully blind not to see that governments have created debt which will never be repaid in a conventional way. There will be financial repression. Uh, sovereign bonds will become certificates of confiscation. And if you want to park cash, so to speak, you're not going to be parking it in fiat currencies or sovereign bonds and making money. You're going to be parking it in those instruments and losing money every year, guaranteed. So in that kind of an environment, there's a lot of adoption that needs to happen into gold. I mean, it's still a, a minority of investors that even consider it. It is growing. It's not a fringe asset anymore. And we keep talking about this. Our client base is expanding um you know laterally and and go, going from sovereigns all the way to the smallest retail investors but still households in general haven't converted the average household has no money that's denominated in gold in their in their system um institutions i would say are still only 20 percent adoptive to gold and so there's there's this huge influx that needs to happen as gold retains its legitimate status as the preeminent store of value 
And the question then is, how much volume can it handle and where does it go? And I think that process is a very slow process because, of course, governments are, are fighting at every step of the way. And I think it's going to take until we see some inflation after this current crisis. I think it's going to take until we see some loss of control in budgets and fiscal deficits. And I just think based on everything I've seen, over 2000 is now a healthy recommendation by the end of the year, by early 2021. And personally, I'm going to take it one step at a time. You know, I'm, I'm not going to go out and say uh, it should be 3,000 based on on the amount of debt that's outstanding compared to during the financial crisis or what have you. I, I recognize those are all valid, but so are those people that are worried about deflation. Um, so it takes a while for this super tanker to plummet its way uh, higher, especially against its main competitor, which is, of course, the U.S. dollar. Absolutely. No, I, I'm with you, Peter. Yeah. I, I have to say I'm absolutely 100% with you. Um, one, one step at a, a time, less sensationalism, because I think, again, it affects yeah. retail. Well, let's just make money as we go here and, uh, you know, put some run, runs on the board. There you go. There you go. Um, so what, what, what makes you nervous about the market? Well, you mentioned a few things there, but what makes you especially nervous about where we find ourselves today? Clearly, COVID-19 has had a kind of ramping up effect, but... Some of the quantitative easing which has gone on um, around the world, what do you think the impact of that is going to be and when? Well, when do you think we're going to start being impacted by some of that decision making? I mean, it's absolutely massive, right? And governments have now um, taken on an entirely new mandate. They now um, seem to think it's within their mandate to control all markets, including the markets for employment, including the markets for Treasury debt, including the you know the, the, the obviously the fiscal and monetary um, techniques that they've had available to them, and and now now they're responsible for the health and safety of all all of their citizens. Um, it it really you know frighteningly reminds me of um, you know the books that were written decades ago, like Anne Anne Rand, Atlas Shrugged, and and 1984. So it's come to this now, and the, the, the numbers are staggering. And uh, the, the, in order to support those numbers, again, I do not think there needs to be debate as to what happens. Sovereign bond yields need to be anchored at close to zero nominal rates. Real rates need to be zero or less for an extended period of time, cash needs to be confiscated by a process of inflation that will eventually make sovereign debts more manageable. That process will take from savers and it will potentially reward risk takers with equities um, because some equities of course can do well uh, during inflation. Um, but it, it will hurt anyone that sits in cash. And, you know, from a very personal perspective to a corporate perspective, to my perspective of as, as an investor, I w- uh, as a professional investor, I would say it is absolutely time to hedge that. So that's how I see it. I, I don't think it's debatable anymore. I, 
uh, these deficits are never going to come down. What's these, the- these, 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 uh, these sovereign and central bank balance sheets are never going to come down. Yeah, it, it, it's it, it's a well. Uh, yeah, I, I, I agree. Monet- it, it, it's going, tough. It's going to be tough. They're going to be monetized. Yeah, as in money printing, MMT, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, I know it's it, it's a it's a tough. I I struggle around my head around the, the size of the numbers we're t- we're talking about here. In, in just uh, just look what's sh- happening in Japan. I mean, the J- Japanese government is going to end up owning half that stock market. When when is it? When is the stock market not just going to become a controlled market of the government? I, I mean, it's shocking what's going on. Yeah, it, it's it's shocking, but no one really seems to have a cohesive plan as to how we collectively solve this. So I, I, again, I think it's probably one for another day and, and one to mon- yeah, mon- a, monitor for sure this year. That's a question of, de- of democracy and um, you know subjects that are beyond the scope of what I can kind of discuss. <laughs> I, I think it's also beyond the scope of democracy in a way because the, these are decisions. These decisions people have not had to make before. Uh, to this sort of scale, but like I say, let's not make this too big a subject. Um, no, for now, um, you've and, and, and I, I would and you used a phrase previously, which I think you sort of covered, which is you know anti confidence thermometer in, in, in the in the shape of gold. But um, yeah. I did want to talk about that, but I think you, you've covered it beautifully elsewhere. Can, can I just one thing you just talked about, which I think is interesting, and I want to help people watching this show understand how they can go about doing it, which is you should hedge. You've got to, you've got to hedge against this scenario because there will come a point where this gets you have to. tough. So what are their options? Sign up a spot? Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, we we would love to talk to them about it. But uh, what what are the options? So the options are to sit in cash, and uh, one step removed from that is to sit in treasuries because of course they give you hardly any yield, but they're liquid. So you can sit and wait and. Um, I think there's some rationale to doing that. I think there's some rationale to sitting and waiting because as other markets stumble, they create buying opportunities. So it's good to have some ready cash. However, every year you'll be taxed on that cash. You'll be taxed on it through the process of inflation and reflation. And it is going to penalize you to hold that cash. So that that's an option. I like gold better than that option but it is an option. And then, of course, the equity markets can provide amazing trading opportunities and also very solid investment opportunities. And some of those can keep pace with inflation. Some of them can even do better with inflation. So it would be, I think, imprudent not to have an equity portfolio. In terms of hedging the risks to the world going the wrong way and confidence starting to bleed and you know major corrections in markets i really only think there is gold and put options on the market which are expensive and you need to know how to time them and there is um you know perhaps some other hard assets like agriculture um timber other other necessary hard assets you know even some forms of uh infrastructure investment that are fairly immune to 
um, economic shocks and fairly immune to inflation or should even benefit from inflation. So you have to start going fairly far afield to get those options. As an individual investor, you, you need to look at liquid alts. You need to look at um, very specific funds. So unfortunately, the way the SEC and the other regulators have made it, it's, it's tough for smaller investors to get into those areas. No, so it certainly is. And I, I, I think it's, it comes back to you've got to know what you're doing. You've got to know what you're investing in before you kind of put your money down. And, some, and that's why I asked the question earlier, do you think all retail investors are equipped to do this with what you and I are talking about, knowing what's coming down the line pretty quick? Well, I didn't want to be too commercial and again, get into a, um, you know, a sprout advertisement here, but it really is the kind of area where it would benefit most investors to have a consultant, an advisor, a broker, a, you know, a, a money manager who can handle their interest. Uh, bullion itself, once it gets to be digital, is going to be a bit more simple. You're going to be able to own bullion and have it in your financial accounts. But as soon as you go past that, um, I think having a professional help you is a good idea. Yeah, I, th I think that's extremely, extremely good idea for, for, for sure. And if you still want to play with some of your money, play with some of your money, but it comes back to this portfolio approach of, of different risk strategies for different parts of your portfolio, yeah. depending on what your needs are, obviously. Yeah, like what, what's the timing? Uh, you know, timing is, especially for gold equities, it's everything because even outside of the bullion movements, those equities cycle up and down 30% on sentiment. So yeah. Yeah. That's it. It's, uh, I think, never a truer word. Um, look, Peter, I've got so many more questions, but I'm conscious you've got to dash off uh, for another meeting well, shortly. I do. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I've learned a lot today, and I'd love to. You know, maybe we should we should uh, definitely speak again, and we can maybe drill down on some other other areas of. Please let's do it. You've asked some very good questions, and uh, we took our time. So I think uh, if if you have follow up questions, I'd be happy to do that. Beautiful, Peter. Well, I'll let you go, sir. Thanks so much for the time. Uh, absolute pleasure okay. to have spoken to you. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast? or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.